Money, 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 the OJs. Uh, it's 11 minutes after 11 and we are talking about surviving the current state of the economy. Please do interact with us on this particular topic. 0614-104-107 is the WhatsApp number or SMS 41391. You can also call in on 011-714-2006. Now, consumers say that the current fragile economy is playing havoc with their quality of life and I do understand why because I'm a consumer too and the new Municipal tariff increases will make things even worse. Municipal service uh, tariffs for electricity, water, sanitation, refuse removal and property rates for the 2021-2022 municipal financial year uh, comes into effect today. Tsepo Pagane spoke to an elderly couple in the city of Johannesburg and filed this report. You get a subsidy, it's nothing. We get for the electricity, you get like 30 kilowatts. It doesn't even last for two days. This pensioner from Nuclear in Johannesburg and her husband, who both wish to remain anonymous, say despite receiving a subsidy for electricity and water from the city, it does not go far enough to cover them for a month. They are forced to tap into their monthly social grant of 1,890 rand each to keep the lights on and the water running. Already they owe the city thousands in outstanding raise payments and it is a challenge to keep up with the monthly installments. I have to pay the water and every time it goes up to a thousand rent. Now we're owing again yeah, around eight thousand rent. They cut the water already. They said, okay, I must pay. So I loan 1,500 rand, I paid it on there. The 1,500 I paid in, I don't even see that on the account. The electricity, I've got to see to that, otherwise we live in dark. With a house valued at over 500,000, the latest tariffs will certainly impact them. The Municipal Property Rates Act allow for the city to offer rebates and exemptions on municipal services. Property rates are based on the market value of the property. Veli Lope from the city of Johannesburg's property branch says those whose property is valued at 350000 and less are not charged property rates. But if the value of your property is 350000 and above, you will pay. In the current financial year, the owner of the property that is valued at 500000 they will pay about 100 rand and 74 cents in the new increase that has been approved by council they'll pay 102.75 cents Joe water senior official Tokozani Shabalala says the tariff for water and sanitation will increase by 6.8 percent each which is a pass-through cost from rent water just as an example if you consume 10 kiloliters of water you you were charged 75 rand 96 now you'll be charged 81 rand 12 and this is a 5 rand 16 increment um, excluding the demand management levy and the vet compared to other big municipalities johannesburg's electricity tariff will increase by 14.59 percent which the city argues is below the 15.09 percent increase that energy regulator nursa granted to escom the electricity tariff in the city of Cape Town, for instance, goes up by 13.5% and Etequini municipality by 14.9%.
Cape Town's water charge is comparatively the lowest at 5%, with Etequini the highest at 8.5% for both residential and business, due to the 7% increase imposed by the Umgeni Water Board, which Etequini will pass on to its residents. I'm Tsepo Pahani in Johannesburg. Having listened to that uh, report uh, from Tsepo Pahani, how are people expected to survive the current economic climate? Uh, and, and and to help us navigate this subject, uh, we are joined by experts in their fields. Um, firstly, Mervyn Abrahams, who's the program coordinator at the Peter Marisberg Economic Justice and Dignity Food or Dignity Group. Thank you very much for joining us, Mervyn. Well, good afternoon, uh, Patricia, and uh, good afternoon to the other panelists as well. We've also got uh, an old friend of mine, still my friend, Jared Mwendambira, who's the CEO of the South African Savings Institute. A very good morning to you, Gerald. Morning, and it's been a while, yes. Good morning to all the listeners as well. Isabel Fry, who's the director of uh, the Studies in Poverty and Inequality Institute, is joining us as well. Isabel, thank you very much for joining us. Good morning. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation, and I really look forward to this critical conversation and debate. It is one that is very critical. I'm going to start off with you, Isabel. I mean, you deal with the studies in poverty and inequality. And are they policies and political will and, you know, just general consensus around alleviating poverty? Or are we just going by? Um, thanks for tossing me out the, the easy question there at the beginning. <laughs> um I think that we need to recognize that we live in the most unequal country in the world. That means both in terms of income distribution and in terms of access to wealth and assets. We have amongst the richest and we have amongst the poorest globally. And that means that the solutions that we need to be developing are difficult ones. They're hard ones because they haven't been done anywhere else. Um, to the extent that we need to be doing them. And it's, it's with great sorrow um, that I think we need to admit that we actually haven't stood up uh, and, and, and grasped that nettle. So if you look at the... Uh, that's, that's the first point. The second point I want to say is that we have a constitution, the most progressive constitution in the world, that says that we're all entitled to dignity, we're all entitled to life and to equality. And so you have to ask, given the fact that we have this incredible document, uh, how is it that we're in this situation where our, our poverty is so intense and our inequality is so unsustainable? And that goes to the answer of your question about political will. I think for many of the leaders who are in amongst the elites, and, and most of us on this conversation are sitting amongst the elites because we are employed. Uh, the expectation was that if we went along with neoliberal ideas of trickle-down, that if we just got some kind of growth, that that would be distributed. But we haven't looked at the micro-linkages. So if you're looking for a trickle-down effect and yet you have rampant unemployment, you've got to ask, how is this trickle-down going to happen? And so what we've seen over time are wrong, and, and I would say really wrong policy choices. We've increased value-added tax um, instead of increasing or introducing a wealth tax. We've looked at squeezing people who have very little to begin with. Um, And although there has been a massive redistribution policy through social grants, if you look at the amount, and I think that uh, Mervyn will probably be looking at that, we don't have enough to actually give people a basic core, a minimum core. 
Um, so we have the wealthy accumulating ad nauseum without the relevant kind of taxation to bring that back into the pot. Um, we have the very poor getting a small, meager handout, which is not enough to actually take them above the starvation level. And we have a small middle class that's being sh- that's being kind of really um, tightened and tightened, and and they're not able to contribute to growing the economy in the way that they can, be- they need to, uh, because they, they're talking out both in terms of tax, but also in terms of um, a kind of private uh, provisioning of education, healthcare, all those aspects of the social wage, which are meant to be beneficial, but because of gear and other state policies, the state has reduced its ability to provide. So we're in a really, really tough situation. And as you started out by by counting, I mean, these additional increases are going to drive us into the kinds of tough choices um, where food is going to go down, savings are going to go down, um, and aspects that the other two guests, I'm sure, are going to cover. Yeah, I'm definitely they will be covering it. Um, let me remind you now, all our listeners, in the that we are going to be speaking. Okay, there's something wrong with the lines right now. I'm going to go to a bit of a break. Conversations that you connect with and react to. SAFM. All right, 20 minutes after 11, all gremlins gone. We are fine, we are set, we are settled, and we continue surviving the current state of the economy. And uh, our guests are are joining us to help us navigate how do we survive. Let me go to Mervyn now. Mervyn, you've done a survey, right? And this survey was looking at uh, the household food basket price, which has increased. And this is not talking about, um, you know, all South Africans, the average household, whereas other South Africans, and I think the majority, are living way below this particular food uh, basket price. But talk to us about this. Yes, so so, so thank you, Patricia. So really, if I could just give you the figures of our June uh, report. And uh, it says that a basket of 44 very basic foods constructed for a household of seven persons um, now stands at 4,128 rand. Now, in effect, that is a, a marginal decrease of 8 rand uh, uh, over uh, the previous month. But looked at over a 10-month period, we see that this basket today is still 271 rand more expensive than it was in September 2020. Now, now in South Africa, we are essentially net buyers of food. You know, we encourage people to grow a little bit of food, but, but by and large, we have to buy our food. So it's a question of affordability. So we have to look at income levels. And when we see that a basket of food costs 4000 and yet the national minimum wage, which we know that the majority of South Africa's workers earn at that level, is 3,600. Then you begin to see the disparity that Isabel was speaking about between the levels of income and the costs of goods and services. The other issue which impacts directly on food is the fact that uh, uh, low-income households have very fixed budgets. 
So when electricity prices increase by 14 15%, water prices increase, we've seen transport increase comparatively by about 7%. When all these increases, it leaves less money for food uh, because they have a fixed, a fixed level of income. Uh, and that is leading to greater sense of hunger and undernutrition in South Africa, which contributes in the long run to our inability to 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 effect economic productivity. Because to effect economic productivity, you need a healthy, strong, innovative people. Uh, uh, and that requires access to sufficient and affordable food. So, uh, so we're really caught in in a bit of a of a cycle uh, that just leads us deeper and deeper into the hole of poverty. And therefore, we need to think, uh, as Isabel mentioned, around different kinds of policies that will pull us out of this poverty trap. So there's a, a whole uh, web that goes behind this particular poverty we are facing, malnourishment, which will obviously impact on the healthcare system and something really needs to be done. We'll, we'll drill exactly. down. Patricia, can, mm. I, can I just say, I mean, something that is very often overlooked, either in the broad public or even by policymakers, is that, is that if we don't eat properly, then, of course, as you say, the health burden increases. It's not cheaper. We actually have to pay. So we either decide to increase the national minimum wage or we decide to increase our health budget. Because at the end, uh, 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 somebody has to pay uh, 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 for for the disease burden, which is a direct consequence of not eating uh, sufficient and nutritious food. Let me go to Gerald now. Gerald, as the CEO of the South African Savings Institute, um, you know, today is a, a, a special day because it marks the first day of July Savings Month, a month that you always come out and advocate for people to save, save, save. But when things are so tough, where do we start our savings journey? People have lost their jobs. People who have jobs can hardly get by and i can't even talk about those who have lost hope altogether yes patricia i think you you're very correct um it's very easy to advise and to educate someone on how to save but they really do need the means um in terms of how to save from an income so what we're tending to find now is that with COVID and the impact on the economy we've had almost a million jobs lost. And the last recession, um, South Africa lost, I think, uh, 850,000 jobs. It took four years to recover. So what are we going to do now? I think we need to combine a strategy of not just educating people on how to preserve income when they do have it, but also start looking at ways of creating more entrepreneurs and small business people um, who also uh, are able to create income for themselves, but in that process are very cognizant of the needs to save. Um, it's, it's, it's becoming more and more difficult to, to save, as you are saying, because people are stretched. And with people living on literally um, the poverty line and li- living on limited resources on state grants, it is very difficult to save. But nevertheless, we still do say that if you do have any access to any income, it should be a practice to try and save as as much as you can, even if you are having a very limited income. 
So it's more about education, uh, Gerald. Um, uh, people need to be educated on how to preserve income. I like that. But what about creating other streams of income when the traditional job is not available? That is it. I think, you know, there's different ways to skin a cat. Um, as much as people always think saving is something which can be done um, from existing income, you can actually do behavior which leads to savings. So there's, we, there's two ways of saving. Either you cut your expenses or you increase your income. If you're in a position where you can't increase your income, you cut your expenses. If you're in a position where your expenses are having cut so much, you're literally in survival mode, then yes, um, you try and find innovative ways of creating that savings environment. And we've seen um, in the last year with COVID, the, the resurgence of things like Stockfell. The Stockfell movement is has a new lease of life because when communities are stretched, even those who are earning as little um, as possible, they tend to come together. And one of the way of create one of the ways of creating that extra income or savings pool is by allowing people to create these Stockfells, which allow people to support each other. Well, uh, I'd, I'd like to remind everyone who's listening, all A-Team listeners, that uh, we are talking about how can we survive in the current state of the economy. Our guests are Mervyn Abrahams, who's a program coordinator at the Peter Maritzburg um, Economic Justice and Dignity Group. Gerald Moyandambira is the CEO of South African Savings Institute. And Isabel Fry, who's the director of the Study in Poverty and Inequality um, Institute. So we want to hear from you. What are the things that you think we can employ to make sure that we are able to survive perhaps you are like uh, this particular uh, listener who has just shared with us on sms and says um, 1500 rand only gets you 673.8 electricity units and you are frustrated because now you need to spend more in order for you to keep your lights on when we have power so call in interact with us give us your questions give us your comments and Possibly, we should reach at the end of the show with a solution. 011-714-2006 is the number to dial uh, to call in. Or you can uh, send an SMS to 41391 or WhatsApp 614 Our guests are with us. They are experts in their fields and they can answer your questions. Um, in a minute, we are going straight to Anne Musa to give us uh, the headlines at uh, 11.30. But do remember that... Um, Sakina Kamendo comes in with update at noon and she will definitely be giving you more info and more insight and analysis around uh, the judgment that was passed uh, by uh, Justice uh, Christopher Jafta at the Constitutional Court. Hashtag SAFM Talking Point. Patricia Nduli on SAFM. We are talking about how to survive in this current economic uh, times when things are tough. You know, everything is tight. Municipality rates and services are going up. Electricity tariffs, water, sanitation, refuse removal. Food is going up. People are just cash strapped. Industries have closed. Certain industries have closed. And... um, Others are working on short time, so it's just really a tough time. We've got uh, experts here on the line who are going to help us to maybe change the way we think about money, maybe try to downgrade ourselves and the way we live or downsize our livelihoods if it's at all possible. 
or even just have an understanding of what policies are available um, or will be implemented to ensure that we as South Africans are able to survive. I've got some messages here on SMS. Um, Tumelo, who calls himself the ghetto leader, says the only solution is illegal connection that we must do. We are not working. That means we must do anything to survive. Tumelo, I don't advocate for anything illegal. You will be behind bars quicker than you can say your name. But I think we should find other legal policies and strategies to you know, be able to survive and live. Olisa says, it's crazy. Uh, greetings to the panel and you, Patricia. This is very absurd. Increases. Unemployment is so high and companies are closing down. This is just crazy. So that the high salaries must be paid. Suspension of all increases must happen because humanity first. Sure, yeah. Um, we are at a place where we want to know how can we live better. I'm going to go to um, Isabel. Isabel, you spoke about, you know, the huge divide of inequality in our country. And um, in, in, uh, in finance, there's a, the term called Gini coefficient that measures the inequality in our country. South Africa has got one of the highest uh, Gini coefficients around the globe. How can we mitigate or what elements should we put to action to limit this inequality? Because those who have are not crying foul like the middle class and those who don't have at all. Isabel? Hi, can you hear me? Now I can hear you clearly. Okay, so apologies. Um, you identified the Gini coefficient, which is a really useful measure of inequality. And it's something which we know has, our inequality has its roots in apartheid and colonial deprivation and uh, land policies and the fact that the majority of people were unable to run businesses to generate their income skills, inequalities, um, the whole slew of it, and it goes down to gender and uh, geographical location. The question is right now, what are we doing to reduce it? The typical tools um, across the globe for reducing inequality, and if you look at stable countries like uh, Sweden and, and the, Sweden, uh, the, the, the Scandinavian countries, they use the state to tax those who are earning or possessing uh, in excess of a certain amount and then redistribute it to uh, the others who don't have as much. And that's generally done through cash transfers, through social goods. Now, what we have in South Africa is we've got a tax system which effectively doesn't touch tax accumulated wealth. Now, whether that was accumulated through apartheid or through subsequent um, unfair distributions, if you as um, a, a rich person die and leave your, inherit your, your wealth to your heirs, there's very little taxation on that. So in effect, the income earners are paying the brunt together with people pay paying VAT um, of the excess to the states. And that's just not doable. It's, it's not doable in a country where we have such high levels um, of unemployment. So fewer people are paying personal income tax. And we've been speaking to a couple of tax experts in the last two weeks about uh, the investigation of a financial transactions tax. So each time the wealthy trade shares and stocks um, and move money around, a percentage of that goes into state coffers, as well as really revisiting the question of a wealth tax. Now, two years ago, uh, the Davis Tax Commission made recommendations to SARS 
to start capturing the kind of information required of the wealthy so that in future taxes can be imposed. And sad to say, SARS hasn't done any of those recommendations. So tomorrow we have an opportunity through NEDLAC to ask SARS why they haven't done that and to ask for deadlines as to when they are going to start doing that. That's the one thing. The other thing that really needs to be said is in the face of the current lockdown we're in, Facing what we have been facing, the fact that the state has not continued the social relief of distress grant is not understandable. Many of us are arguing that we need to have a universal basic income grant as a kind of equalizer going forward. But there is absolutely no way that the state can justify that it has stopped paying the 350 rand to the 7 million people who were receiving it, plus the additional people who were getting the caregiver's grant. That is something um, that history will judge us really harshly on because it also, Patricia, it's not just the individual households and the bread on the table. It's not just the individual levels of cognitive development of children, but it's also our economy. If there is no demand, you know that it's not going to be growing. Um, And so further jobs are going to be lost as businesses close because the consumers are not there to sustain it. So it's not really something which um, you need to have high degrees of economics in. What we have is a system where those who have the ability to make decisions are preferring not to make the bold decisions that are required. We need to redistribute. And the one country that's done it really successfully is Brazil. And they did it by introducing something known as a Bolsa Familia, which is really a cash grant to all households that fell below a certain amount of money. So currently, civil society organizations are talking to council, to senior council and advocates, say, what kind of case do we have to do? Because we have tried and tried and tried to get the state to comply with its constitutional obligations, and it's not doing that. Mervyn, you did a survey that looked at the fact that um, to feed a child a basic nutritious diet, you need about 729 rands and five cents a month, whereas currently the state is giving child support grant of 460 rand per month, which equates to about 21% below the food poverty line. Um, so how, how, how can we enlighten the state that our children are not being given enough. The poor of the poorest don't have enough to be able to survive and be healthy um, and, and, and be productive so that we can have a productive economy. Yes, and, and uh, um, Patricia, it, it, it connects to really what Isabel said so eloquently, and thank you, Isabel, for saying it, is that our policymakers, the ones we have elected, to to govern have not had the political will to begin to look at how we transform our economy. I mean, it is a situation when so so you 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 for instance we're in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, we know that last year, even though the top up to the caregivers grant was very small, but we know that that top up had in fact helped lots and lots of children from going into intense hunger. We also know from our research on the ground that in many cases, women tried to save, even if it was five rand from that top up, in order to prepare for, for January when the children will go back to school. And, and, and so, so this money uh, that we're talking about, giving a proper value 
to the to the to the grants. It's not money as it's about there that is lost to the economy. It is money that immediately goes into the economy because it immediately gets spent on the purchase of food, on transport, etc. And that makes more money flow around and creates more and more demand. So essentially what we what we have at the moment is we have a lack of 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 of, of political will to actually take the tough decisions. And of course the tough decisions are those in the financial markets. Uh, 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 and many economists who, who, who benefit from the current financial system that are, are, are arguing against redistributive policies. But, but we, without redistributive policies, we are not going to alleviate poverty in any substantive way. So, so it really is a, a question around how do we transform our economy and redistribute wealth. Gerald, to you now, with the way the economy is currently looking and the markets not being very um, friendly with those who are keen investors, are there savings vehicles that people should be looking at, especially for those, like Mervyn was saying, who are willing to even save a five rand a month? Look, I think you're right. I think there there is a space in the savings universe of South Africa to start creating those entry-level savings vehicles which have minimal fees and minimal costs to enter and currently unfortunately there's not that many Um, a lot of the savings vehicles you get have minimum contributions which are beyond the reach of the most vulnerable and those who may want to save as little as they have Um, so this speaks again to financial inclusion and one of the things we're doing this year as part of our savings month campaign is to have uh, the theme of saving in your language because um, one of the biggest ways in which many South South Africans have been excluded is through language. Um, The savings products, the the savings information is predominantly available in a language which most South Africans might not converse or, or, or think in. So we're talking about trying to get more information around savings and investing and money in vernacular languages. So that's our theme this year with our with our with our partners APSA and we're trying to move that message through Patricia because when people start conversating and talking money in their own language they will come up with solutions often you know um, the solutions we seek uh, can be found within the communities themselves and hence why I did try and mention that you know the stock film movement resurgence is a good sign because it allows anyone to participate and I think if we start seeing more development of solutions to cater for that market we will be able to to try and at least allow those who have as little as possible to to formally save but in essence as you just said a lot of the institutions a lot of the solutions available are simply not for those who earn very little let me go to our A-team listeners, uh, Eddie in Odensdal Ross. How are you doing this morning, Eddie? I'm well, how are you? Good, thank you. Thank you very much. Greetings to your guests as well. You know, I thought we were getting COVID relief, but we're getting a COVID increase, unfortunately. And when coming to the municipal um, uh, issues, one, one would propose to different municipalities that, because see, even the billing system is a problem. Because it's not accurate. Why can't they, you know, as a means of relief to, to us, 
just write off the, the debts that, that, that is there and also use the transfers that they get from the national government and use it, uh, you know, profitably and reinsert those that are meant for electricity and water. Reinsert those monies because sometimes they are, they are used for other things. I mean, those are the proposals one, one will, will give to the to, to municipalities. Write off those debts as a means of relief to communities. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Eddie. I'm going to uh, Nicholas in Cape Town. Good morning, Nicholas. Morning, Kathy. Uh, Patricia, Nicholas. Well, first, uh, the, the first one, uh, the first issue that I need to uh, uh, touch on, Kathy, uh, we're having a problem. We're coming on air. We talk and talk and talk and talk. The question that I have for the, you know, for the people out there that, 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 that says people must save, people must do that. Yes, people want to do businesses, small businesses, but there is no capital. Isn't there any way government can help the people and start those small businesses? And then the other thing that is denying people opportunities in terms of doing businesses is the, is the documentation is called the permits and, 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 and licenses, of which are too expensive. It's not like people are just sitting on their asses. They don't want to do anything. They are, uh, you know, there are those two sources denying people uh, uh, to go out there and start businesses. By the time people start doing small businesses, you will see the law enforcement popping in and asking them, do you have a permit? Do you have a license for this business? People, they do have the business mindset. And the second thing I need to touch on, Kathy, uh, I just want to be quick. I know uh, that if in South Africa, many people doesn't know. I spoke to people from different countries out there. Uh, in terms of the social grants, start from the children. Uh, I want to mention the countries, but I spoke to, to people from three different countries. The, the social grant for the kids is supposed to be 1,500 rands. There is no child that can live uh, on the 400 rands grant per month. That is an insult that, you know, the government, uh, the, what to call it, the South African government is, is actually throwing to the uh, uh, children of this uh, country. Thank and you also, very much, Nicholas. Thank you. I'm moving now to Colin in Cape Town. Uh, good morning, Colin. Good morning, Patricia, and good morning to your um, panel there. Patricia, two years ago, I used to get uh, put in 400 rand, buy 400 rand electricity. Okay, I got out of it 400 rand, 350 units plus 63 units. Because I phoned the council and explained to me, if, uh, we give you 352 units. If you use over that amount, you go into from one rand seven a unit to two rand forty odd cents, which is a big jump. But now, my question is: when they increase the tariffs of electricity, they don't increase the free units, so it stays the same. So eventually, you are buying more, spending more money, getting less electricity, and you are forced two, three, four days before the end of the month to go buy the new electricity, which is two rand sixty or whatever it is. So therefore, they don't up your free units. In other words, um, they give you 352 units. That is now one rand seven cents unit. They don't up that. When they increase, they don't up that units to 370 or something like that. It stays. 
350 units, then you get your free. But once you go over that, they take your free units away. So now, at the moment now, from two years ago, 400 rand, I'm putting in over 800 rand. I'm getting less and less and less and less units. So there's no, there's no way of winning here. Thank you so, very much for weighing in, Colin. It is really tough times. I'm, I'm looking here at... Uh, some of the messages that come in, Lee, who's in George, says there is no way I can downgrade. I only get 1,890 rand per month from Sasa. Two weeks, it's finished. It looks like dying of hunger might be cheaper. Another one here from an anonymous says, I understand the need to feed people who cannot feed themselves. But that is a short-term solution. Long-term has been proven to create jobs. Government should create an environment pro-business to create jobs, to create tax that says in short-term as a reward for working hard and earning as a result of it, you get to fund government who does not have the ability to pass the funds to those claiming being uh, redistributed for. Another one here says, uh, why is it that uh, the companies can claim for costs incurred to earn their income, but we as individuals cannot? To get to work, I need to pay for travel costs. I have to eat. I have to wear something, all of which cost even the medical rebates we use to get uh, have been slashed to a lousy 310 rand. We are struggling, losing our cars and homes, yet we have no recourse from SARS. We can't even access clinics without waking up at 3 a.m. in the morning. SARS needs to be investigated for this. And correction, we do not have one of the highest inequalities in the world. We have the highest inequality. Those are the comments uh, from our A-Team listeners. Uh, let me get your feedback. Uh, I'll start with you, Mervyn. Um, thank you, Patricia. I mean, I would like to respond to to the uh, 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 caller from George that said, you know, it's about creating jobs. And, and I want to say, yes, of course it is. But it's not at a variance. So it's not creating jobs is different from giving a grant. We can also help through giving grants for people to create livelihoods which can turn into a job. But that requires that that the grants be set at a level, a monetary level, that actually allows people to to be able to save or to invest into a livelihood. And that is why we have supported the basic income grant, but that the basic income grant be set at a level that not only keeps people in poverty, but to, to, to increase it. Because jobs will only be created if there is demand for the goods and services that these businesses can create. And, and currently in the township, there is no demand because there is no money. So. Uh, we can create demand through uh, a paying decent social grant. Patricia, can I can I follow? Uh, come in, come in, Isabel. Yeah, thanks. Um, I think Mervyn's completely correct, and one of the reasons why people criticize grants is they say it creates dependency. Now, globally, as a researcher, I can say that the evidence is there that the grants create demand and that creates greater jobs, but. As Mervyn said, the critical issue is the threshold of the grant. You can't say to someone, I'll give you a bean a day and expect that person to be able to run a grocer's shop. 
there has to be a scientific approach at saying this much is necessary for survival. This much is necessary to stimulate and grow the economy, township economies, rural economies. Um, and we're not doing that at this point in time. In fact, our, our anti-poor anti-poverty and inequality policies um, have their roots in sort of three, four hundred years ago where the poor were seen to be poor because of some deficit of their own, some character default. Uh, we just don't have that. We have an economy which is known as an enclave economy. It's, it supports the rich and the elite um, and it extracts from the poor. Now, one of the reasons our inequality exists is our economy is based on mining, and it has been, and that's the same with Asadic. And so the profits of the mining get taken out overseas. Uh, the labor, the workforce is paid as little as possible. Um, and, and we as a country are basically uh, ex- exca- excavated, um, and, and nothing is given back to it. So I think that people's articulation of saying enough is enough is something that government has to realize. If we look at the riots in Tunisia, many regimes were brought down because people started objecting to the fact that they couldn't afford bread. Now, there are a number of policy initiatives that the state could be looking at. We could be looking at subsidizing basic foodstuffs. We could be looking at um, increasing those items which are not subject to VAT. We could be looking at reducing VAT to the 14% or lower on on, on taking it off all foodstuffs. We could be looking at increasing grants. We could be looking at referencing the fact that people need at least 7,500, according to research we've done, to have a decent standard of living. Now, I have that as an aspirational level. But instead, and I sit as a national minimum wage commissioner, what we get is, is information from employers saying, if you increase the national minimum wage, we will simply retrench our workers. And so we have a situation where everybody is trying to, um, to, to make sure that they survive, as opposed to saying, what do we need as a nation to go forward. Our legacy to our children is devastating. As Mervyn has said, we're not producing children who have the cognitive ability to become the workforce, to become the parents, to become the citizens of the future. And we're doing it at the same time that we're looking at the vast amounts through the Zonda Commission that our executive has seen bleed out, that our parliament has overseen on these transactions. So where is the morality? that drives our country today. Uh, Gerald, uh, give us your uh, thoughts on uh, the comments that we've received from our listeners. Gerald, are you there? It seems like Gerald is not on the line currently. Let's go to some of the voice notes. Yeah, I muted the call, yeah. Morning, Patricia, and your panel. I'm Donald in Asenbeg. Is it wise to save in American dollars rather than Iran's? Is it wise? Morning, Patricia. Um, I'm listening to this program and every time and every day people come up with different solutions about job creation and entrepreneurship and everything like that. Simple solution, let the, 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 the looters pay back the money, impound what they have, sell it and Give the money back to what belongs to the people and the taxpayer. Thank you very much. Hi, good morning, sister. Hopefully you are well. This is Kevin Simpson from uh, Western Cape. Look, um, this increases and stuff. I don't know who are these people that is deciding that there's new tariffs on uh, water, all these things. These people, they 
earn huge, huge wages. So it doesn't really affect them. But uh, what I can tell you is that uh, with these increases also, you can uh, expect uh, crime also to increase. Yeah, that's just my opinion. Man. I mean, yo, you, 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 these guys, they are, they, they are killing us, man. They are, they are killing us, really. They are killing us. Thank you, sister, for a great show. Let's go to Gerald uh, with his comments. Gerald? Hello, Patricia. Yes. Hello? Yes, we can hear you. Give us your comments, please. Okay, so essentially, look, I've been listening to all the panelists, and, and there are a lot of systemic issues which are preventing the creation of wealth. And I think it's, it's a much broader discussion in terms of um, how we have modeled our financial system to cater for wealth preservation as opposed to wealth creation. And one of the panelists did make a comment that, you know, the, the system is designed to extract from the, pure, from the poor. So essentially, if you do give someone a grant of 350, even 1,800 rand, it simply goes back into the system and beneficiates those who are maintaining the system. So we need to have that change in mindset. Also, it's not possible for everyone to wake up tomorrow and be an entrepreneur. Um, it, it, it's, a, it, it's an ability and a desire and a skill which needs to be taught from, a, from an early age. And I think some of the roots of our systemic problems around inabilities to save, inabilities to, to, to create wealth are from the fact that we have inherited a colonial education system which taught people to memorize information and regurgitate it. And if there's no one to instruct you, you don't know what to do. So we need to really um, re-examine South Africa as a nation and, and what we would like to see it become. Um, but yes, the inequality is something that is um, systemic and we need to start addressing it right from the core, from education, right through to being able to say, okay, rather than give a grant of 350 rand, how can we not get 20 youths give them 350 rand each and give them a project and mentor them and incubate them and try and create a small business because we are in a vicious circle. Um, if, we, if, we, if we keep um, depending on employers to employ, we, we, we are not ever going to get out of this rut and the inequality and the gap will simply widen. Already, um, I was reading a report yesterday that the middle class is shrinking simply because people are un- un- unable to maintain their lifestyles, assets are being repossessed, and where are they going back to? To the very people who are maintaining that system. I would like to thank all of our guests uh, because you have really weighed in on this uh, in terms of the policy. You've weighed in in terms of what the current standards are on the ground for us uh, ordinary South African consumers and also on what we can do to try and move forward. Thank you very much to you, Mervyn. Thank you very much to you, Isabel. And thank you very much, Gerald, for joining us this uh, morning. It's uh, 12 o'clock now. We are going to go uh, to Sakina Kamwendo, who's going to give us update at noon. The team that I worked with, uh, having such a great pleasure with, is Siyanda, also known as Siya, Lebu and Gwenzekile. Thank you very much. Alongside with Anne Musa, may goodness and grace lead you to the great heights of success.